Thank you very much, ladies. Aren't we blessed to have such a group of talented and lovely ladies here to help us today? It's wonderful. I'm going to pray for our next session. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your love towards us. Please continue to open our hearts and minds to what you want to teach us from this passage. Please speak through Helen and give her your strength. Amen. So the Bible reading for the next passage is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 24. Um, if you've got the church Bible there, you'll find it on page 1175. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave... So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I would like to invite Helen to um, come back up and lead us on our second session. Well, as you may have gathered uh, from the interview earlier, television doesn't feature very heavily in my life. But one thing I do occasionally watch, especially when I'm with my elderly aunt in Devon, is the Antiques Roadshow. 
One thing I love to do with my aunt in Devon is to go around antique shops. And it's always exciting to see the precious things that have been made. I think one of my most uh, enjoyed episodes of the Antiques Roadshow is when someone brought along a vase. It wasn't a particularly uh, beautiful vase as far as they were concerned. It wasn't a particularly special vase as far as they were concerned. In fact, it was simply the vase that sat by the front door and they stuck their umbrellas in it. But somebody had said, why don't you take it along? It'll be interesting to find out what the story is. Used for damp things, used for old things, used for messy things. This was not a vase that was valued in the home. Until, that is, the person valuing the vase said, hmm, probably between thirty-five to 40,000 pounds. I'm sorry, says the person that owns the umbrella stand. We've been sticking our muddy, wet umbrellas in something that's worth £40,000. You see, they didn't realise the value of what they had. They didn't realise it was special. And therefore, they didn't use it in an appropriate way. They took something that was worth loads and used it as if it was a special buy from Wilkinson's at the end of season sale. Well, we can do something quite similar with our own lives. See, the reason we started in Ephesians 1, and the reason I think Paul starts with Ephesians 1, and doesn't just nip to later on into his letter, is that he knows that unless we see God right, and unless we see ourselves right, we won't use our lives in the ways that are honouring to God. You see, if we think we are worthless, useless, sort of end-of-season sale items, we'll act as if we are useless, worthless, end-of-season sale items. We won't have the confidence to go out and talk about Jesus. We won't have the confidence to live life with his priorities. We won't have the confidence to know that we're equipped to do all that he calls us for. And so when we read things in the Bible telling us to be patient and telling us to be kind and telling us to evangelize and telling us to read the Bible, it feels like a burden because it feels like we're being asked to do something that we're not designed for. It feels like we're doing the equivalent of trying to open the tin of the spiritual life without having the right tin opener. But I think God in his wisdom got Paul to start Ephesians with our identity because he knows if we see that we are chosen, if we, see, if we see that we are called and secured and equipped and forgiven and clean and bought back and loved beyond measure, if we see ourselves as we truly are, as we've truly been made by Christ, then what he calls us to do no longer feels impossible. It feels beautiful. And we'll want to pursue it wholeheartedly. But what does that actually look like? What does it look like to live a life worthy of our calling? What does it mean to be made for more on a day-by-day basis? Well, first off, let's look at what it doesn't mean. First First off, it doesn't mean living a life that is convenient to our culture. As Christians, we are not called to be chameleons. Now, let me put in a caveat uh, right at the start of this session. I'm not saying we should be so weird and odd that people laugh at us. 
We've all met those people that you just look at what they're wearing, look at how they're speaking, and you sit there and think, please don't let anyone know that I'm associated with that person. Now, I'm not saying that's a right instinct in our hearts, but it's an instinct that can be there. We're not called to be deliberately weird. But what we are called to be is deliberately distinctive. Not a chameleon that's blending in with the culture around us. So, for example, if you were to sit down with your best friend, who, your best friend out of your non-Christian friends, and to compare how you use your time, and compare how you use your money, and compare how you see education for your children, and compare how you have priorities in your home, would you be the same, or would you be radically different? Now, they won't be different in every respect. Of course, our non-Christian friends do some things beautifully right, uh, and we don't want to be different from the things that they're doing beautifully right. But if we're living authentic Christian lives, people should be able to tell at a glance that there's something different about us. Maybe it's the way we use our money. We choose not to get the expensive car. We choose to have a smaller house. We choose to have different kind of clothes. None of these things are rules. We have freedom. But we might choose to do something differently so we can give more to mission, so we can give more to the church, so we can give more to a local charity. If, if there's nothing wrong with wanting our children to be well educated. I myself have benefited from many years of good educational establishments. But is that what we want most for our children? Is it that we want them to have the grade A's at A-level? Is it that we want them to have the Oxbridge degree? Is it that we want them to have that PhD and that job in the city? Or do we want, first and foremost, for them to be loving Jesus? And if that happens to be while they're at Cambridge, or have a great job in the city, that's brilliant. But our priority is for them to have their eyes on Christ. The same with our time. Of course, there are many calls on our time. There are family commitments. There are things that have to be done. We do have to buy food. We do have to cook it. Uh, we do have to keep our house at, at least at basic sanitary levels. We can't skip all of the housework. If we have children, they do need to be clothed. But actually, are we treating our time in the same way as the world would have us treat it? Are we just pursuing things that bring us fulfillment or are we sacrificing? Are we pursuing things that will help promote that veneer that we were talking about earlier? Or are we pursuing things that will help us to live authentic lives, even when that means showing others that we are weak and broken? As Christians, we're not called to be a life of a chameleon. We're called for something far more exciting than that. We're not called to blend in. We're called to stand out, to be known as the people who love each other, to be known as the people who forgive each other, to be known as the people who are generous, to be known as the people who are kind. But sometimes that can maybe feel a little bit like a burden. So it's important to say that just as we're not called to be a chameleon, we're not called to exercise circus skills in our life either. We're not the spiritual equivalent of plate spinners and jugglers that are just keeping a million and one things going at the same time. Because while some of us in this room will tend towards wanting to be like the world because we don't want to stand out, 
Others of us might be wanting to be so countercultural. We're trying to live this sort of perfect Christian life. I want my children to be so rooted in the Lord. I'm going to have quiet times with them morning and evening, and we're going to talk about Jesus over every meal. I'm going to attend every women's group. I'm going to attend every women's event. I'm going to go to every prayer meeting. I'm never going to miss church. I want to be one-to-one-ing with at least 17 people every month. I want to be the person that can bake that perfect cake for the church event. I want to be that person that then is hospitable to the missionary that's come back from overseas. And sometimes our Christian life can feel a little bit more like plate spinning, but not plate spinning that's fun, plate spinning where everything is just beginning to wobble. And you just about manage to get around it just before they crash to the ground most of the time. But it's stressful, it's fast-paced, it's burdensome. That's not the life that God is calling us to. That's not what I mean when you're made for more. You're not made for more in the sense of you have to cram masses into your diary till you reach the point of burnout. That is not the life that Jesus is holding out in front of us. What we are called to is a life worthy of our calling, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. An authentic life that is centered on Christ. A life that just flows out of a heart full of uh, thankfulness to God's generosity. Now that is not an easy life. Paul knew that as he was writing this letter. As a prisoner for the Lord then, he writes, he is in jail for living this authentic Christ-centered life. I can't promise if you put into action everything that we're going to talk about this morning that your life is going to be easy. Jesus never promises that for any of us. But I can promise that it will be beautiful if we pursue this made-for-more life, if we pursue this life worthy of our calling. And what we're going to look in the time that we've got available to us is uh, just four sections where we'll look at how generous God has been and how we can respond to that generosity in life day by day. It might feel like I'm throwing quite a lot of ideas here. Please know that I'm not expecting anybody in this room to put in action everything that I'm talking about. Uh, Life's not like that. What I'd love us all to be doing is looking at our lives and going, well, maybe there are things that I can set aside that actually I don't need to be doing. And maybe there are things that I can do instead. To give you a very trivial example, I decided uh, a little while ago Uh, that I was not spending enough time praying for people in the church who were hurting. And so I looked around my life at the things that I could get rid of in order to make space for that priority. Now, I am a single woman, therefore I possibly have a little more latitude in this area than some of the rest of you do, and I'm very acutely aware of that. But what did I do to make priority for prayer for people who are hurting? And this might be an alluring idea. I gave up ironing. I now no longer own an iron in my house. And basically, I'm working on the assumption that if I'm somewhere where I need to be really smart, there's a dry cleaner down the road that will handle those occasions. And the rest of the time, I don't care if I look slightly crumpled. And excitingly, I've discovered the people around me don't care either. Now, you don't have to give up ironing. 
But you get the idea. Whilst I'm going to be sharing some ideas of how we can live a made-for-more life, you can look at some creative ways of what you can set aside realistically in your life, in the age and stage that you're at. Well, first of all, verses 1 to 6 of our passage. A made-for-more life is a life where we dwell in unity with one another. You see, in verses 4 to 6, we see God's immeasurable generosity. He has built us into a community, a community that is so deeply entwined with one another that we are joined together as a body is joined together. And that's meant to be something that's very real for us as a church. We're meant to be so united, to know each other so well, to share our lives so deeply, that when one of us is crying, then the others feel their pain. When one of us is rejoicing, others of us feel their delight. It was beautifully modelled for me on Thursday evening. I run a a small Bible study group at my church. Uh, It's a Bible study group for uh, women who have English as a second language. And so our Bible studies are very short They're very simple. We use very little words. But we love each other well. And one of the ladies, uh, her mum, who was in China, uh, died earlier this week. And because of the situation in China, the funeral, the cremation happened very quickly indeed. There was no hope of her going back for her mum's funeral. And as she Skyped into our Bible study, she didn't feel able to be there in person, but she joined us uh, over the internet. There were tears rolling down her eyes as she spoke of the love that she had for her mum and how much she missed her. And I, as I look round the room at the other ladies in that Bible study group, tears were running down their face too. She was hurting, so we were hurting, because we're all one body. That is what we're called to. Our life of being made for more is a life where we spend time together as a church. Events like this are great, but I'm not talking about just events like this, because events like this are extra things to put in our diary. I'm talking about just normal, run-of-the-mill, spending time together day by day. You know, if you're anything like me, sometimes you feel that if you're inviting a friend from church round... It's, it's a little bit of a mission. The, the living room needs to be vaguely tidy. The kitchen at least needs to look as though World War III hasn't broken out. The washing at least has to be in a place where it can't be seen. The food has to be above beans on toast standard. We need to spend quality time sitting, listening. And sometimes, of course, it's lovely to do those special evenings, isn't it, when we make everything nice and welcome people into our home. That's not how we treat family, is it? If you think about the other people in your home, your husband, your your children, your elderly parent, your flatmate, whoever's there with you, you don't make that kind of effort every time they come home, do you? You don't make sure your house is always spotless every time your husband walks through the door. Or you don't make sure your children's bedroom is perfectly in order, just in time for them to come home from school every day. They, They see your mess, don't they? They create the mess as well. It's a messy home. But your family is welcome in that messy home. And so it should be with our church family. We welcome them into the mess of our lives, not into the picture-perfect book of our lives. 
One pastor, uh, not my current church, a previous church that I was in, said, I want everybody to go around to each other's houses for dinner this week. But there are only two things on the menu. Either you serve beans on toast or you serve a jacket potato with some salad. There was a complete blanket ban on impressing people with our cookery. A complete blanket ban on spending loads of money to welcome our family in. A complete blanket ban on actually pretending we're some sort of pseudo master chef. When actually most of the time we're struggling to get spaghetti out without it sticking to the bottom of the pan. And you know what? It was absolutely beautiful. We just sat in the normal mess of each other's lives, eating very normal food, no one pretending they were anything other than weak and fallible, and just talked about Jesus. Now, if you don't like beans on paste, that's fair enough. There can be some other options. But you get the idea. Being made for more is being a community that spend quality time together, who go to shopping together, whether that's food shopping or clothes shopping. People that um, will uh, drive together to church, you know, maybe save the environment slightly, um, but also just have an opportunity to chat en route. People that walk the dog together to get out in the fresh air. If you haven't got a dog yourself, find someone that has. Go with them, give them some company, chat about how life is going, take some exercise. People that just do life together, not pretending. Now, obviously, we're not going to want everyone to know everything about our lives. There is such a thing as personal space. We are allowed to have evenings in at home. For those of us who are introverts like me, that's very important indeed. But the idea is we're meant to be sharing. Because we're not a random group of people. We are united. Did you spot how united as that passage was read out for us? There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are utterly united. We are as close to one another as it's possible to get. So being made for more is to live out in the light of that unity. Not feeling we have to create it, not feeling we want to run away from it, but embracing it, sharing lives, sharing the joys, sharing the hurts. And that means letting people know the real us. Do you, do you think of the other people around you in this room as shiny and perfect and sorted and great? Let me let you into a little secret. They're really not. There isn't a single sorted person in this room. There isn't a single person in this room who doesn't feel weak, who isn't broken, who isn't messing up. That's who we are. And so getting to know each other, living in the light of our unity, being made for more is knowing that stuff about each other, probably in small groups or in friendship groups. You're not going to know everything about everyone in the church, but always having people we can trust, always having people we can relate to, always having people we can turn to. I have... Uh, a number of good friends. And one friend in particular who will occasionally come alongside me and say, Helen, what do you really not want me to ask you today? And I'll say to her, please, please, please don't ask me how my quiet times are going. 
Or please, please, please don't ask me how my contentment in Christ is going. Or please, please, please don't ask me how I'm doing in my personal evangelism. And predictably, she then goes, so, Helen, how are your quiet times going? How's your contentment in Christ going? How's your personal evangelism going? Not a hard conversation to have because I love her and she loves me. And I can ask her the same sort of tough questions. It's part of the deal. But part of being united, part of being joined, part of being together, part of living this life where we're made for more is living in a community where we don't have to hide. Now, interestingly, Paul realizes that this is going to be difficult at times because he precedes this with the words, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. He knows that even though we're united, even though we're called to share lives together, even though we're called to this intimacy, there will be moments where we drive each other nuts. And whilst I don't know this church well, I feel fairly confident that there are at least a few relationships in this church where you're driving each other nuts. No need to say anything out loud right now. That's normal church. He doesn't say be united, share lives, do things together because it's going to be easy. He doesn't say be united, share lives, acknowledge your family relationships because it's going to be convenient. He says it's because it's right what I've made you to be. And along the way, just bear with each other. Put up with the grumbles. Put up with the irritations. Now, if there's something genuinely abusive ever going on in a relationship, that needs to come to the light. That's not the sort of thing we brush under the carpet. But those little niggles, those little words that drive us nuts, we mustn't let that break our unity. Because we're made for more than division. We're made for more than hiding. We're made to come together in openness and in truth. Well, does that sound a little self-seeking? A little bit like I'm asking church to come a hug in rather than a mission field? Well, not if we go on to verses 7 to 13. You see, God has not just given us united community. God has given us gifts to use in this community. The grace it's talking about here is not saving grace. These are some of the hardest verses in Ephesians, I think. And if you have any questions about the deep theology, do ask your pastor. I'm sure he'd love to answer them. But this is not, verse 7, this isn't the saving grace that's been apportioned to each of us. It's not like some of us are saved a bit more thoroughly than others. This is the the grace of being given gifts by God, of some of us being good at hospitality, of some of us being good at evangelism, of some of us being good at music, of some of us being good at teaching the Bible. These are the, this is the grace that leads into what he's talking about as the gifts that he has given to the church. And all of those gifts that we have are important. Now, some of those gifts are upfront gifts. We've got the prophets, the apostles, the teachers, the evangelists, the pastors. They're the people that kind of tend to stand up on places like this, Sunday by Sunday, and teach us. But they're just the people that are kick-starting the process of serving. They're not up on a pedestal. You see, what their job is, is to equip us so that we can serve. Churches aren't about the professionals doing the stuff and the rest of us being consumers. Churches are united family places where we know each other and are known, are safe in that sharing. 
but places where we are active in serving in ways that build up the church, in ways that build up the body of Christ. And every single one of us in this room is gifted. And every single one of us in this room has got a gift, or more than one gift probably, that can be used to serve your sisters and brothers here. Now some people might have lots of upfront gifts and it might be tempting to think that they're the important ones. But actually, the behind the scenes gifts are just as essential. Today would not be as pleasant a day if there had been no tea and coffee. None of us would stay for the afternoon if someone hadn't been down the chippy and ordered lunch. We could have sung unaccompanied, but it would have got very pitchy. We could have all brought our own notebooks, but isn't it much better that someone's typed up a little booklet? Maybe we know who those people are, maybe we don't. But their gifts have been useful in building up the body of Christ. They've been using their gifts for the glory of God. Actually, being willing to bake a cake, being willing to type up uh, an attendance list, is something that is just as likely to get that well-done, good and faithful servant at the end of time as anything that someone who speaks or writes books is likely to do. And so a life that's made for more is a life where we value the gifts that God has given us, and are willing to use them to his glory and for the good of the people around us. The pastors, the teachers, teach us on a Sunday morning. We then get together probably in small groups midweek, and we have other people that can do slightly simpler teaching. Then we get together in in one-to-ones where we might talk about what we've heard. And then there's lots of other things on the outside. There's a cascade effect where we're all encouraging one another. But let me ask you this question. How well do you really know what your gifts are? And how much are you using them in the church? Now, again, let me caveat this. There are ages and stages in life. If you're sitting here with a six-week-old baby probably screaming at home as you're checking your phone, you're not going to be able to do as much as somebody like me who is single and set apart to do ministry. It's not a competition. We don't all have to do exactly the same kind of things. But we all have something to give. Do you believe that God has gifted you? Do you genuinely believe there is no such thing as a useless Christian? There is something that God has given you, probably multiple things, that he is calling you to use for his glory. Maybe that's your home. Maybe that's your car. Maybe that's your mouth. Maybe that's your bank balance. Maybe that's your prayers. There is nothing so beautiful as the power of a praying granny. I was, used to work for London City Mission. And there are a lot of people that I work with that come from a background of gangs and drugs and knives and guns. Desperately hard situations. Been in prison. Been in youth offending been in all sorts of trouble, and later come to Christ. And you know what? Almost every single one of their testimonies included the power of a praying grandma who just didn't stop bringing their grandchild and his or her wayward ways to the Lord. Maybe that's you. 
Maybe you're someone that can welcome somebody into their home. One of the most important people in my life until she went to be with Jesus a few years ago with this lovely little old lady down the road. And on those days when I'd been traveling a thousand miles in a week and I couldn't quite remember what towns I'd been in, on those days when I felt exhausted, on those days when I just thought, why don't I give it all up and go and work in Tesco's? Life would be so much simpler. Did I read a book? Did I go and talk to my pastor? No, my first book of call was Daphne down the road. Daphne was in her 80s. She was riddled with arthritis. She never left the house. She was as deaf as a post. She had the fattest cat known to human beings. Utterly spoilt. But she had a gift of encouragement that surpassed anyone I'd ever met. Keep going, Helen. Keep going. It's worth it. What you're doing, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't get distracted. She never did a talk in her life. Never ran a Bible study in her life. But just had that wonderful, welcoming home where you could sit and plop and cry and be loved. Maybe you're a musician that hasn't yet joined the music group. Maybe you are someone that loves to teach other people about Jesus, but hasn't actually even read a book yet on how to teach the Bible well. Maybe you naturally have really good conversations at the school gate, but you're not quite sure how to talk to them about Jesus, but you'd really like to be able to. Why not think about how you can use those little gifts that you've got for the glory of God and for the good of people around you? You are essential to this church. You're not an add-on. You're part of the group of people that God has brought together, knowing that each one of you has a part to play. It's going back to that body image again. You know, people used to say, oh, Helen, if you were in the church's body, you're definitely the mouth. I thought, I think that's a good thing. I'll go with that. We'll go with mouth. And then she said, I'm that little bit of dry skin on the elbow. I said, a little bit of dry skin on the elbow. And she said, yeah, it's what happens when you're working in the kitchen, holding things up all the time. And I'm not ashamed. I love being that little bit of dry skin on the elbow. Because I know so many things that you do couldn't work unless I was doing what I do. I don't know whether you're a foot, whether you're an ear, whether you're a brain, whether you're a heart. You'll be a combination of all those things. But as well as living together in unity, where you are known and you know others, being made for more means being in a community where we're serving, where we're we're looking out for one another, where we're taking the gifts that God has given us and using them. But it also means, in verses 14 to 16, actually I think it's probably verses 13 to 16, I've changed my mind since I wrote the, the outline. Being made for more is a life where we're growing into maturity. You see, God has given us generously some sure and certain doctrines. You know, we don't have to wonder what he's like. There is a bit of mystery. We can't know everything about God. He's too big. But we know everything we need to know. He's revealed himself through his son. He's revealed himself through his word. We have a sure and certain group of things to hold on to. But our response to that is to grow in our understanding of who he is and what he's called us to do. You see, in verse 13, we can see a a commitment to personal growth in the church. 
Responding to who we are, using our minds and our bodies in the way that he has designed them to be used, means being committed to growing. We're a bit like a pot plant. I was quite excited to hear we're going to have a plant at the end of the day. I'm going to try really hard not to kill it. But we are designed to be growing people, not stagnating people. I guess many of us, when we first became Christians, will remember that first flurry of excitement. We wanted to read the Bible. We wanted to go to every event. We wanted to know. We were like sponges soaking it all up. And then we got busier, and then we got committed, and maybe we got older, and it was a bit more familiar. And that joy of growing maybe disappeared just a little bit. Well, Paul is saying, let's get it back. Let's be people who, who long to know this book so well, who long to know it inside out, who long to commit it to memory so we can speak it out, so we can live it out, who, who long to know in times of anxiety that we are safe because we know those truths about God, in times of depression that there is hope because we know those truths about God, who in times of confusion know we have a shepherd because we know about God. How do we grow? Well, there's no rocket science here. We have our quiet times. We, we read the Bible. We read books. We listen to podcasts. We go to days like this. Maybe some of us want to do formal study. You know, theological study is a beautiful thing. You don't have to be heading to be a pastor in order to want to dig deep into God's word. And it's never too late. I used to run um, a little theological uh, distance learning section of a theological college. Uh, And our oldest student was in his 90s. And I said to him once, you know, please don't think of me as rude, but you're in your 90s. I'm guessing you're not training for a new ministry at this point. You're not about to start a new job. Just tell me a little bit, what led you to start theological education when you were 91? And he said to me, Helen, realistically speaking, it's not going to be that long before I see Jesus face to face. I want to know him as well as I can before I get there. I want to be a 91-year-old doing a theology degree. Now, a degree might not be your thing. It's not compulsory to have a theology degree. You get into heaven quite happily without one. You just have to know the grace of God. But do we have that hunger to soak up God's word in all of its facets, to be so drenched in grace and what we know about him that we will take every opportunity that we can? Now, that doesn't mean setting aside masses of extra time necessarily. Can we listen to a podcast while we're in the bath? Can we listen to a podcast whilst we're driving the car or doing washing up? Can we read a book together with a friend? And you don't actually have to set aside an evening to do that. Read it on the train, on the way somewhere, and then just text your friend what you thought about chapter one. And they can read it while they're rocking their baby to sleep, and they can text what they thought about chapter one. Keep it simple. Keep it fitting with your life. Don't make things complicated or unsustainable. That's when we burn out. But let that hunger drive you. Want to know Jesus so well because he loves you more than anyone in the world. And spur one another on in that. 
This, this bit in, in uh, Ephesians, in verses 13 to 16, it's not just about personal growth. It's about us being committed to the growth of others, to speaking the truth in love, to being people that are so invested in each other's spiritual growth that we're willing to help them out along the way. As women in, in Oak Hall Church in Caterham, you are designed to be metaphorically, or maybe even literally, women who link arms, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and say, come on, we can do this, girls. Let's keep going. Let's keep focused on who he is. Let's keep focused on the life that he's called us to. We're not going to give up. So offer to read a book with somebody. Offer to pray with somebody. You don't even have to leave your bed. I start my week every Monday morning, curled up in my PJs with a cup of something by my hand, on the phone to a friend in Manchester, and we just go through a little bit of the Bible and pray together. We don't even get dressed. But we want to spur each other on in our walk with the Lord. We're going through Revelation at the moment. We are utterly confused. But there is hope and beautiful things that we are learning week by week, even though we're wrestling with tough imagery. Never fits. If you haven't got time in your life because you've got very real family commitments, that you know, an elderly parent that needs a lot of care, a very young child, a child that's disabled, you've got health problems, which means that your energy levels are very limited. I'm not trying to burden you, but find something that fits. Maybe you can do something that I love to do with young mums at church. And that is simply this. When they can't get out of the house and all sanity seems to have gone, simply saying once a month, we are going to learn one short verse of scripture together. That's our baseline. We're not aiming for any more than that. But once a month, one short verse. We'll chat about it on the phone for five minutes. We'll then text each other it. We'll then WhatsApp each other it. We'll then Facebook each other it. We'll then go onto a Bible app and put it into a nice picture and uh, email each other it. We might even get a card and write it and put a stamp on it. One month, one verse. All of us have the capacity for one month, one verse. A lot of us will have a capacity for much more than that. But whatever you're able to do, grab it, grow, encourage somebody else to grow. Pray with people after the church service. Pray with people over lunch today. Be invested in them becoming the women who are made for more. Spur them on to love and good works. Not by seeing each other as projects. Not by seeing each other as people that need fixing. That is entirely depressing. I remember being told once, Helen, I see you struggle with anxiety. I think I can make it better. Immediately, my heckles rose. I do not want to be your pet project, was the only thing going through our minds. We do this humbly, as fellow strugglers, as as fellow sisters, just going through life in the mud and the mire together. But we go for it. We go for it, nevertheless. Being made for more is a life of unity where we share our lives. Being made for more leads to a life of community where we serve each other in the gifts that God has given. Being made for more is a life of pursuing maturity, where we get stuck into God's word and his ways and encourage each other intentionally to go for it. And it is a life, finally, in verses 17 to 24, of change, of becoming more like Jesus. 
You see, in his generosity, uh, God, uh, uh, it says in verse 24, has given us a new self. When we became a Christian, the old was washed away. We became brand new people. You are not who you used to be. But it's hard, isn't it? We keep acting in the ways that we used to be. You know, God has made us clean, but we keep acting in ways that make ourselves dirty. It was C.S. Lewis that first used this analogy, though I'll misquote him horribly, I'm sure. But it's like God has made us little children, dressed up in our finest, heading for the beach. But instead, we decide to just find the nearest muddy puddle and jump up and down in it. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He's given everything we need for a life of patience and gentleness, but we keep going back to being impatient and unkind. He's given us everything we need to forgive people, but we go back to unforgiveness. He's given us everything we need to trust him, but we go to panic. He's given everything we need for hope, but we go to despair. We keep going back to our old self. But part of being made for more is being committed to a life where we are going, I I don't want this old self anymore. I want to change to be wholeheartedly living out my identity in Christ, wholeheartedly living in the light of my new self. To be people that are active in taking off our new selves, having our minds renewed and putting on our new self. What does that mean in practice? It's not a trite thing. It's not like, oh, my old self is anxious, so I'm going to read a Bible verse on anxiety, and I'm going to suddenly start trusting. It's more complex than that. But it is breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. Lord, when I come home at the end of a long day, I don't want hobnobs or alcohol to be the first thing I turn to. I want it to be you. So help me just put those biscuits away to come to you for the comfort I need and to put on my new self going, Lord, I need you more than I need sugar. Let me dwell in the beauty of the things that you say to me. Let me dwell in the beauty of my relationship with you. It might be, oh, Lord, I, I want to be more patient with my children. They drive me nuts. I mean, seriously, how long can it take to put on a shoe? But that's my old self. I want to be someone that actually treats people as you treat them. And that means teaching them how to put on a shoe and encouraging them to put on a shoe and maybe explaining to them the necessity of putting on that shoe within the next hour. But doing so in a way that is calm and loving and kind and keeping coming back to you for grace on those days that I fail. Because I want to be that person that is known for being like Jesus. Or or maybe you're you're running away from evangelism. You know there are people in your life that desperately need to hear about Jesus, but you're scared. So you come back to God's word, to have your mind renewed, to look at the necessity of evangelism, to look at how loving it is to evangelize, to, to look at how equipped you are. And saying, okay, Lord, this is going to be hard, but you're in me. You've given me the words. I'm going to take a baby step. I'm going to say just one sentence to drop a hint, to sow a seed, and we'll see how that goes. I'll take the next step from there. Being made for more is a life of unity where we share life. Being made for more is a life of community where we serve each other. 
Being made for more is a life of maturity where we constantly committed to our own growth and the growth of others around us. Being made for more is a life of conformity to Christ so that when we look back, we can see how God has changed us and rejoice in the sins that we have set aside and in the suffering that we have persevered through. In short, it's verse 24. We are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And we are called to pursue that wholeheartedly. Now, what that's going to look like for people in different ages and stages will vary. Some of you might go off and study. Some of you might just start a two-minute quiet time for the very first time where you open your Bible each morning. Some of you might start a new Bible study group uh, with the permission of your church leadership, of course, or you might start reading the Bible one-to-one with somebody. Some of you might just pick up a book for the very first time about Jesus. I remember when I was at London City Mission, one of my colleagues, who'd come from a very chaotic background, at the age of 49, sidling up to me and saying, Helen, I've just read my first book. It was great. Maybe some of you are in that situation where you just never read anything about Jesus. If you don't like reading, get an audio book. Listen to podcasts. It may be that some of you are going to want to pick up the phone and go to somebody. Do you know what? Do you want to come around on Friday? Let's keep it basic. One of my friends down the road, I used to have mush Sunday evenings. What's a mush Sunday evening? You know when you get to the end of the week and your vegetable drawer has got nothing but vegetables that are turning to mush in it. The carrots that are getting a little bit furry. The the greens are a little bit limp. The mushrooms that have gone a little bit slimy. And you're just sitting there thinking, do I eat them? Do I throw them? Well, we just got together. Me and her whole family. And we just got all of our manky vegetables, mushed them up, stir-fried them, and used it as a wonderful opportunity to eat together and laugh together. Community, all centred on a decomposing carrot. Well, I don't know what you're going to do. And as I said at the beginning, you can't do all of this. I mean, gradually we can grow towards all of these facets, but please don't try and put all of these things into action all in one go. It will be utterly exhausting. You'll have to turn your life upside down. But pursuing being made for more is exciting. Because if we genuinely live out that made for more life, we will be people that will know that we never have to hide. Whatever sins and struggles we are battling, we are not going through it alone. We will know if we live this made for more life that we can never be without purpose or use. We have been gifted, and we've got a call to use those gifts to the glory of God. We will know if we have living that made-for-more life, that we have an exciting growth ahead of us, no stagnation, and a beautiful opportunity to spur others on around us. And we will know in that made-for-more life that whatever we are struggling with right now, whether it's anxiety or depression, whether we've got a physical illness or an addiction, whether we are really struggling with anger or or lack of trust, that there is hope for those situations. 
because we have a God who is working in us and a community around us who loves us. That is the life that you have been made for. You are not made to be the spiritual equivalent of an umbrella stand that's sitting in the corner just getting the muck and the mire. You are designed to be beautiful human beings who are chosen and called to a life that is extraordinary, who are gifted, who are united, who are growing, who have wonderful opportunities to encourage one another. This isn't just a good life. This is the best life that there can possibly be. We may have to sacrifice other things, other worldly, other less important things around the edges to pursue it. There will be different ages and stages in life. It won't look the same if you're 20 as it will when you're 80. But will you go for it? Will you take who God has made you to be, that precious image bearer, chosen, forgiven, and filled with the Spirit? And will you live this made-for-more life? You won't regret it if you do. Christ will be glorified. Your sisters will be built up. And you will be more authentically you than you have ever been in your entire life. Let's pray together as we close. Father God, thank you that there is no one in this room who is unloved. No one in this room who is uncalled. No one in this room who needs to be alone. No one in this room who needs struggle alone. No one in this room who isn't called to anything other than community and love. Father, I know I struggle to see myself in that way sometimes. I'm guessing some people here will be struggling to see themselves like that too. But I pray that by your Spirit, you will be changing our view so we believe more and more who you've made us to be. And we grasp the life that you've called us to more and more enthusiastically. And Father, I pray that each and every person here will just focus on one thing that they can do and as a result of today. Father, whether that's growing, whether that's being more open, whether that's serving, whether that's receiving, whether that's changing to be more like you. Help each of us to pursue this made-for-more life for our good, for the good of the people around us, and for the glory of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Helen, for speaking to us this morning. It was two really helpful and useful sessions that we had. Um, oh, instructions for lunch. In the foyer as you came in, you would have noticed that all the tables are laid with plates and cutlery. So please go and choose a table where you want to sit and collect a plate from that table. Then you can go to the serving table to collect your order. And then there's another serving table for salads and sauces. Um, cold drinks are available as well. Uh, once you've finished your, your main meal, uh, your table will be cleared and then you can go over to the other serving table where there's fruit and probably still some more cakes to eat as well. Um, and once you've finished your, um, your, your meal, please feel free to go and have a look at the bookstore uh, and have a, a good search there. And we need to be back in the hall um, at 2 o'clock. Uh, I'm going to give thanks for our, our food now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all your blessings. Thank you that we have had our minds fed with your words this morning. We also thank you for the food we are about to receive, and we ask you to bless it to our bodies. 
Amen. Right, the food is now available, so please don't hold back. Please go and get it while it's still hot.